Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. You really learn that a day is just a day, right? You're like, you know, I know it's our first anniversary, but I'll be back in nine months and we'll just have to celebrate them, right? You you find a way to overcome that and minimize what you really want to be an important thing, but it, it can't be because when you're out fighting, uh, you can't stop to do that. You can't have a minute. When a civilian enters any branch of the military, they go through a period of basic military training that's designed to change the way they think and act to turn them into a soldier, sailor, marine, airman, or coast guardsman. This is seen as an important time in the individual's life, critical for the proper transition from being someone not in the military to part of one of the greatest fighting forces on the planet. After a period of time in the military, however, there's little done in any branch of the service to help that service member transition their mindset to life as a veteran. As we often say here in the Change Your POV podcast network, after one leaves the military, they're never going to be a civilian again. And they're no longer a service member. They're this entirely different third thing, a veteran, with all the experiences, knowledge, strengths, and challenges that go along with that word. One of the most overlooked aspects of transition is a service member's mental health and wellness. If the veteran has their heart, mind, body, and spirit in the right place, and has a support network of family and friends to rely upon, then they're most likely going to have a successful transition. Those things are not in place. Things can get challenging. I'm your host, Dwayne France, and I'm going to take you through a veteran mental health boot camp to give you some advanced training for your brain. These episodes will cover the many different aspects of veteran mental health that I, as both a combat veteran and a clinical mental health counselor, see, experience, and support veterans with daily. I'm going to be joined by both veterans and mental health professionals talking about what you need to know about the stigma against seeking support, the different areas we need to understand, and provide some resources for when you think you might need them. Get up in the morning and out of the rack, because this is some information that could very well save your life. Welcome to Veteran Mental Health Boot Camp. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Headspace and Timing Podcast. As you know, we're pretty far into the series on PTSD, TBI, and beyond. Um, what we're trying to do here is trying to give everybody an understanding of what veteran mental health is what it looks like and, and really going beyond just what people think is uh, PTSD and TBI. Uh, I welcome you to uh, go back and, and listen from the beginning. Uh, and we've had guests on uh, pretty much every day for the last two weeks um, talking about their different uh, area of expertise regarding veteran mental health. And so, as you know, uh, today uh, we're going to be looking at one of the last aspects of it. And, uh, and, and we're going to be talking about veterans and, and families and family systems and how veteran mental health and veteran family mental health uh, really kind of coincide. So uh, to, to join us in doing that, I'd like to um, welcome a colleague, a friend, uh, a mentor at times. I mean, Josh and I have, uh, 
have known each other. We've we've uh, worked at the same agencies overlap sometimes, but uh, but I think that we've known each other uh, for probably about three or four years in the counseling community here in Colorado Springs. So, Josh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Dwayne. Um, yeah, so I'm Josh Kramer. I'm a licensed professional counselor, licensed marriage family therapist. I'm also an AAMFT approved supervisor. Um, in addition to that, I'm an Army combat vet. I got two two deployments under my belt. Um, and yeah, so that's me. Glad to be here. Talk about uh, veteran and family mental health care. Yeah, so uh, I was looking a little bit on your bio. You're you're um, you like me bridge the gap between sort of the peacetime army and the uh, and the wartime army. You had a deployment to Kosovo, uh, which was in that weird stage, that Balkans kind of stage between mm-hmm. um, the Gulf War and and uh, and then. 9-11, and then you were there uh, in 03. Um, so uh, tell me a little bit about your military career. Sure. So I got into the military in 1998, joined the Army, and um, I had actually tried to join the Navy. My, In all honesty, uh, confession's good for the soul. Uh, I come from a Navy family. My grandfather was retired Navy, um, and I have a couple uncles that were in the Navy. And at the time, before 9-11, there wasn't as much going on uh, with the ground pounding forces. Um, and the Navy guy said, hey, you've got a young kid. It's going to be a lot more separation. And once you know it, I joined the Army and ended up, you know, in a six-year uh, stint that I did getting deployed a couple times. Uh, so, but I went in, I was enlisted as a cryptologic linguist, linguist which sounds fancy. Uh, we did low-level voice intercept and um, different things in intelligence. Um, I was out sleeping basically on the side of a hill doing different things. Um so, yeah, so I did that. I got out uh, after my deployment in 2003 to Iraq as part of OIF, the initial push in. And, um, yeah. Yeah, we, uh, we, we kind of like to make things sound cooler than they are. Uh, we're in the military. That's right. And, uh, when I That's was right. stationed outside of Fort Meade, I had a lot of cryptologic linguists that would come in and try to pretend like they're James Bond. Oh, yeah. And I, I said, you sit in a basement with headphones on, so let's not right. – uh, let's. Let's not That's right. uh, make it more than what it is. So uh, so you were there, and, and you had, uh, like you said, a couple of deployments, and then you transitioned out of the military, um, it, but but you weren't a mental health professional while you were in the military. How did that transition occur? Sure. So I did get hurt while I was deployed. I uh, fell off of a five-ton, landed right on my back during some you know excitable times that we had there. Um, so that was really one of the main catalysts for not staying in. I planned on going green to gold, becoming an officer. Um, that was my plan. And at any rate, uh, got hurt, got out, tried to join the national guard, actually tried one last time to stay active and I was too broke. I had sleep apnea as well. Um, so started my journey of readjustment to civilian life. I had a couple of really rough years, like a lot of people do when they transition out of the military. So I had my own personal uh, readjustment struggle story, um, really dark time. And at some point I got to using my own mental health services and I, it was enough of a kick in the butt to keep me going in a good direction. But I also realized that it wasn't always, uh, what I needed specifically with family care, um, that I can talk about in a little bit. I'll, I'll save that for, for some of the other discussion. Um, but yeah, I basically looked at the things that I did in my life uh, that kind of brought me joy, uh, if I could speak frankly. And uh, I worked at Walmart in college, and I was the one that was there trying to help people find stuff. I wasn't hiding in the back, putting bicycles together all day. Uh, I was a team leader in the Army, and I actually cared about my guys. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of leaders ne- didn't necessarily care. They just said, hey, you're here to do a job, do it. And um, but I found myself uh, getting involved with trying to help them become better soldiers and better people. Um, I was really passionate about that. So those kinds of thoughts just led me to looking at uh, different fields. Um, I had voc rehab that I was able to use. And I remember a friend of mine who had been in a psychology master's program just said, hey, what about a mental health background? That sounds like something that you'd be good at. Uh, from what you're telling me. And uh, it was pretty much an epiphany that I that I said, wow, I get paid to do this. I can help people like I, like I feel called to do and actually get paid to do it. So that's kind of how it all came together. And uh, so a couple years after I got out, 
I did a master's in counseling, and um, the rest is history. Yeah, so, I mean, you've been uh, in uh, the clinical mental health field for about eight, almost 10 years now, I guess, right? Yeah, I got my degree in 2007, um, so about 10 years. Yeah, so I did internship, uh, post-degree stuff uh, out in Missouri. I was in Springfield, Missouri. And uh, part of how I ended up out here in Colorado is the, the, there was not uh, sustainable wages there. I was making, I did a contract after I got out. Uh, and it was 50%, 50-50 from the agency. And most people are paying $5 for their therapy. And, you know, I have a heart to serve like many of us do. And so that, that worked for a while, but it wasn't paying the bills. So I moved out here to Colorado. I got a job with the Bureau of Prisons. Um, that's what moved us out here. And it was a residential drug and alcohol program. Did that for a couple of years. Um, so I guess I'll jump ahead to that piece, just getting to where I am now. Uh, worked there. I thought I'd be there for a few years just a couple that I had to do. I did my time. Uh, it was a wonderful experience. I learned a lot. There's actually a lot of vets in the prison system, unfortunately, that I ended up getting to work with. Um, and then I got on with the VA, which was actually one of my goals in moving to Colorado Springs, big military town, right? Five military installations, lots of us vets that want to settle here. Um, so yeah, I worked for the VA vet center for the last six years. Um, and then I've been with, um, Regis University since then as a faculty, uh, marriage and family therapy faculty. So, and, and that's, uh, that's quite a journey. And, and, uh, and like I said, I know you and I have interacted, uh, you know, professionally and, and, uh, and in the community quite a while, but, but the reason why I asked you on, uh, specifically to this is your background in marriage and family therapy. And so, um, you know, for you listeners out there way back in episode one, you can go back and check it out and, and, and I'll throw a link. Uh, but kind of talking about the different level or different kind of mental health professionals, uh, whereas uh, Josh is a master's level counselor as an LPC, licensed professional counselor, but he's also another type of uh, master's level counselor called a marriage and family therapist. And so um, I know, Josh, you and I had talked about this offline, but but you saw um, marriage and family therapy, you saw a greater need for that than than just individual counseling. Could you talk about that a little bit? I did. Yeah. So my first supervisor, uh, when I was a counselor, I hadn't done the marriage and family therapy training yet. Um, he, he really stuck with me some, a bunch of stuff that he said, but one that really sticks out is I was working with children a lot. That was initially what I wanted to work with. I uh, was child and adolescent populations doing a lot of play therapy. Um, and he basically said, Hey, you have to understand that you can't work with parents and not work with the family. It's like cleaning up a pig throwing it back in the pen and expecting it not to get dirty again. And that really stuck with me. And I realized that a lot of the kids I was working with uh, were not getting better because the, the issue was actually the, the kids, uh, quote unquote, problematic behavior was actually just a reaction to parental stress and family distress. They were just acting out. They didn't have the words to say that, but their behaviors were that. So I would help them not do whatever they, the parents were wanting them not to do, but then it would come right back. Um, and so that was really the catalyst for me to begin doing more education um, and training with marriage and family therapy. Um, eventually, I did a postgraduate marriage and family certificate at Regis University, where I now teach. Um, and I also had, so that's my professional piece. And personally, um, when I came back from Iraq in 2004, 2000, end of 2003, December 2003, into 2004, uh, I reached out for help. I realized that um, uh, my marital relationship needed some help, some fine tuning. And I went to the VA, uh, which is where I had care and access to care. And I said, hey, I need help. My wife and I could use some help talking about some stuff. And uh, to be honest, it was abysmal care. Um, I had a, it happened to be a social worker um, that we saw. And she basically uh, turned it back on us. Uh, and, 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 and didn't really give us much to go on. She, we had, I saw her for two sessions. Um, the first session, she made me feel guilty, um, that I should just, you know, not do certain things. And, you know, um, it was, it was very simplistic. She didn't get into any of the underlying emotional content that was actually driving the struggles we had that I can now assess in my own self, uh, that was going on. Um, and she gave us a workbook. She basically said, here, do this workbook and you'll be fine. Your problems will be fine. You're solved. And 
it was it was horrible. It actually made me feel worse. You're the problem. Go fix yourself. That's right. That's exactly it. And and so you got into uh, and you started to see obviously that that you had more concerns. Uh, your family had more concerns than just when it came down to individual therapy. And that's really sort of the 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 guys behind this this series that we're trying to let veterans and other mental health professionals know that. Um, that things go beyond just PTSD and TBI. I mean, you and I, uh, again, we've we've talked uh, professionally and, and at length that PTSD is there. Yes, TBI. Um, you know, we we had Dr. Blair Cano uh, on to talk about TBI. You know, Blair, and, and so yes, those things are true or those things are, are necessary. But uh, there's a certain aspect that goes beyond veteran mental health or beyond PTSD and TBI. And that's the family system. So could you kind of maybe give us a, an overview of some of the things that you see with uh, with veterans and families, maybe? Sure, absolutely. So there's several things that come to mind, but one of the primary uh, family dynamics that seems to come up with uh, military life in general, not just deployment or PTSD, um, but is definitely related to those things, is... Um, it's uh, the name, the, the citation is EBACH, it's uh, E-B-A-U-G-H, I believe. And uh, this is a researcher who back in 1977 was actually studying nuns who had left the uh, practice. And she was studying their struggle with readjusting to a different life. And it wasn't until more recently that some of that study, uh, or those studies, I should say, were applied to military families. And it's been one that really rings true in, in many settings. So the, the theory is called role exit theory. And this is one that, again, personally and professionally, I found a ring true. Um, I've used it a lot in my work. So the essence of role exit theory is that with separations that we have in the military, whether it be field time, deployment time, training time, um, any, any number of, of things that break apart the connections that families establish, that we separate ourselves from roles that are central to our identity. So, for example, when I'm a father, it doesn't mean that I'm not a father when I deploy, but I take that role and I'm not functioning the same in that role while I'm deployed. I'm focused on me. I'm focused on my team. I'm focused on staying alive downrange. On the home front, the spouse becomes a single parent for the entire time of the deployment. So that's a new role. They've given up the role of having a partner to be there to help them with things. And um, so basically two people get separated from the roles that they have, have to find new roles. And then the stress, the struggle comes in trying to reestablish roles and new roles when they come back. Um, so, for example, um, I can share a story from the trenches of my marriage. Um, I came back and my wife was very excited for me to come home, of course. And a lot of this happens after the honeymoon periods. Uh, there's kind of a euphoria that comes when you first come back and, you know, you can do no wrong. The kids love you. They want to play. You have fun. You go out for dinner. Uh, you do these kind of things. But as soon as that fades, which happens pretty quickly, um, you get into the reality of, of living life together again in, in these new roles. So my wife, when I came back from deployment, she had been expect she had a long list of uh, projects for me to do around the house. She was looking forward to me uh, helping, collaborating, jumping back in. What was interesting is that she was actually resentful of me trying to plug back in. She wanted me to, but she was also emotionally resentful towards me because she had established her own way of doing things um, while I was gone. So luckily for us, we are, uh, I'm a counselor. She's done a lot of um, behavioral work with children in the school system. Uh, I think we had enough insight to kind of figure some of this out on our own. And then I was able to apply some of the stuff I was learning professionally to my own marriage. Um, but it took a lot of time to readjust to those new roles and figure out, you know, how we wanted to settle into those roles. With children, a lot depends on the age. Um, small, very small children, uh, their resentment comes with a cold shoulder, a uh, turning away from, they, they've, they've lost some of the primary years, and I'm talking like five and under, kids have lost their uh, attachment years, which are very formative in building connections. It doesn't mean you can't rebound from that, but uh, younger children uh, 
can ha also have what I feel is like kind of resentment is one of the core feelings. And they also have to readjust to having mom or dad back home. Um, and it just changed the, basically the, the, the essence is there the same for kids. It just comes out different ways. Uh, school age kids have some words they can share. They can be like, I'm mad at you. I'm, I'm upset. They will say these kind of things. And you have to allow in the role readjustment, you have to allow the children to express that. Otherwise, it just gets bottled up without it hurting the parents too much. You have to do some education with the parents to help them understand that, hey, this is legitimate. Children just need to be able to express these things. And if you don't let them express it healthily, it's going to come out in more negative ways. Teenagers, they have the words, but a lot of times they act out in self-harm behaviors, uh, drug and alcohol, drinking and drugging, um, you know, delinquent, what, what might be called delinquent type behaviors, um, you know, and it's different for different kids. But that that it, it, to me, what I've seen and what I've studied is a lot of it relates to readjustment. It's the readjustment home. Um, there's lots of ways to deal with the separation itself. And people just get on autopilot and out of survival. You have to just do things to make it. The real problems come when you reconnect and you come back together. Um, doesn't mean there's not work to be done when people are separated. Um, families at home can get triggered by the news. Um, soldiers that are downrange or service members that are downrange can get uh, triggered by a phone call, you know, missing something going on at home. Um, so anyhow, that to me is one of the primary uh, dynamics in a family system uh, related to military service. You know, it's it's really interesting, and, and uh, I see a lot of the same things in the individual clients that I see when they talk about relationships, and, and even as you said, uh, in my own experience, um, and and that can be exacerbated, I think, by the 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 multiple deployments. Um, I know I've often said that there wasn't a a calendar year between 2006 and 2013 that I was home for a full year. Some of those I was only gone for three months. Some of those I was gone the entire year, you know, in, in 15 months. And, and I had, you know, uh, uh, four deployments stacked in between that. And, and I realized that my children, when I started deploying, were, uh, were in first grade and second grade, which is in that sort of pre-verbal, you know, like five, six years old, you know, just emerging into that school age. And then when I stopped deploying, they were entering high school. And so they had gone through that that you know older toddler into school age and then into teenagers um, and they experienced that in and out uh, and i was in conventional forces uh you and i am we've worked with uh, special forces soldiers where that role reversal is is even more frequent the frequency um of of how this happens increases the magnitude maybe yeah i think so it gets much more complex the the issues if left unresolved build on each other. They, there's a compounding effect. Uh, for those that get some help and get quality care, you know, and actually uh, for, for what we're talking about can get some family system work done, um, that can mitigate the impact some, um, but it's still going to be more significant with multiple uh, separations and deployments. You know, I've always said that uh, military life is inherently stressful anyway, right? I mean, you, you alluded to it. Um, right. Uh, families are separated. My wife, um, when we got married, moved to Fayetteville, North Carolina with me, then to Maryland where she didn't have any family and I didn't, and then to, to Colorado and we've been here. And so um, spouses are uprooted from their support system. We know that that's a challenge. Um, I've mentioned it before several times about how my children are military brats, so they have no place where they're from. So it's almost an ungrounded generation of, of they don't have they can't point to their childhood home like I can or, or like, you know, like maybe you can. And, and so it's inherently stressful on the family, even separate any other type of mental health concerns. That's right. It is. I, th I know what you, you kind of triggered me with uh, what I've not me personally, but what I've seen a lot with kids is that, well, actually, you know, I take that back. My oldest, she, she gets triggered by the question, uh, where are you from? You know, we, we uh, normal, uh, I'm not sorry, not normal, uh, a civilian uh, with not a, not a lot of military background might inadvertently just ask that right and, and innocuous question, uh, not realizing the impact that could have. That's part of being you know sensitive to the culture, being aware that that could potentially be an issue um, versus. So instead of saying, you know, where are you from? Uh, you know, where do you claim? Um, 
you know, or, or asking different questions, different ways. Um, so yeah, but you're right. Just, just, just the moving, um, uprooting, um, you know, like, like actually is said, if, if the military wanted you to have a family, they'd issue you one, you know, that's not just something that we say, that's something that's actually verbally, you know, <laughs> my, my, uh, my, my beautiful bride has hung up on a platoon sergeant before because he said that to her. Um, right. You know, I mean, and yeah, those those are actually, you know, um, things um, that, uh, you know, and, and yes, it, it, it is challenging. Uh, and then whenever you have sort of the deployments on top of it, um, what kind of things have you seen that if this is unresolved, uh, what kind of challenges emerge from this, from from like disrupted families? And sure. Um, so I think of it back to the core emotional component that I see. Um, it's it's definitely more complex, but for the sake of um, time and, and trying to con- be, be more concise here, uh, I think things, you know, there's a scale to me of bitterness to resentment to uh, anger, maybe then in hatred um, would be maybe the extreme. And what, what happens when things aren't dealt with um, there can be a lot of bitterness and resentment that if unresolved turns into really hatred. Um, there's really uh, what John Gottman, one of the relationship gurus for couples therapy, talks about is contempt. And you start to see that couples will come in for help. And it's not that it's too late, but when people are so hateful towards each other, um, they, they, they can put on a good show they can have the honeymoon period when you come back from a deployment, but really during the separation, people find themselves, uh, especially with multiple deployments, find themselves resenting the person that they they may have loved at first. Maybe not. Sometimes there's not a strong foundation, um, which is a whole other subject. Actually, I'll mention that briefly that, you know, in military marriages, sometimes people get married um, earlier than they maybe would if they if they weren't in the military you know you meet somebody at a duty station you're getting ready to pcs or leave that duty station in in two months and you're like hey let's get married um or you know sometimes alcohol can be involved i've actually seen that a couple times um so if you don't have that foundation um or as strong of a foundation that puts you at even more of a deficit um so but the separation um, and the constant separation, the frequent separation, rather, um, the feelings of resentment build and build and build. And then you've got people coming in for couples therapy that are vile towards each other. Um, and, you know, a lot of times it can it can be too little too late. Um, so early intervention is definitely important. A lot of people don't even realize that they can go in uh, for couples or family therapy. Um, so, yeah, it builds. Most definitely. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting that you said that a little bit about um, maybe the resentment piece. This is one thing that, that uh, honestly, as I've started to do this, of course, my wife and I uh, have been talking more about that. And she had told me, it was probably even two or three months ago, that when we first came back, when I first came back from my first tour, which was 15 months in Iraq, and I would want to discipline the kids, she would... She would get resentful of me. She was almost, I mean, she said she felt this, you know, who does this guy think he is telling my kids what to do? She never That's expressed right. that to me, but, but you know, later she was like, I had to deal with that to let you come back in um, and, right. and really to, to just, you know, to, to sort of let you have that rollback. That goes back to what you were talking about with the role exit theory and ebook is the 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 allowing the willingness to let that go back and she noticed the resentment and then she really just kind of let it go but yeah but, and and then the other piece that you said of course um i i saw it too we called it what babies having babies right you know 18 19 year old kids were in love and the army the military pays us money to be married right you know there's more money i mean so there's a monetary incentive and i've always believed that the military is a running away from as much as a running away to when we serve um you know i was sleeping in my dad's basement right i didn't have anything going on i was a, a you know no name loser 18 years old and so i joined the army so i could you know be all that i could be back in those days right 
but it's the same for spouses too a lot of spouses maybe this is my ticket out of this little wherever i'm at this is my you know this is my way and so now you have two people that that maybe not be you know as foundationally prepared um themselves and now they're in a marriage and now there's children involved and it gets very complicated have you seen that oh yeah very complicated very quickly (laughs) um people people have not um you know, a lot of the foundational aspects of relationship building where you, you feel each other out, you learn about, specifically with marriage, uh, you, you, you learn about each other's uh, family of origin, where they came from. And um, you, you work some things out. You, you work out little, little things really do become the big things like, you know, when is the right time to open presents on Christmas? Is it Christmas Eve or Christmas morning? Um, you know, there's very different schools of thought on that. Does the toilet paper go over the top or underneath? Right. And, and you, know, it, it, you were, you were saying that, but I was thinking that these things are, <laughs> are how, you know, I mean, how, I mean, but it's, it's all of these aspects of daily living, um, that people sort of learn about, but then the military, the military life really interrupts that. It does. It does. You get, you, wherever you are in the, um, bonding process and the learning about each other process uh, that gets severed, you know, for various, various reasons. Um, I, I'm going to jump back to kids with this example, but it, it struck me uh, the other day I was talking with someone that I, I hadn't processed this myself, that I missed um, each of my children, their first steps. You know, and it always kills me. It kills me to, to say that it, I have a very strong emotional pain, um, but, you know, basic training, uh, Kosovo and then Iraq. You know, I missed each of my children's first steps. And, you know, so those are things. Uh, and then in my relationship too with my wife, there's other things I missed, you know, um, certain anniversaries and celebrating holidays. You really learn that a day is just a day, right? You're like, you know, I know it's our first anniversary, but I'll be back in nine months and we'll just have to celebrate them, right? You, you find a way to overcome that and minimize what you really want to be an important thing, but it, it can't be because when you're out fighting, uh, you can't stop to do that. You can't have a minute. Now things are changing a little bit. I think with technology, I don't think I know with technology, it's helping bridge the gap a little. It's still a separation, you know, 60 or no, not 60, 70 to 80% of what we communicate being body language and tone of voice, even with good quality, uh, things like we're on here, Skype for this podcast, it, it it's not the same as in person. Um, but I think technology is helping bridge the gap a little. I had a, I went to a graduation, uh, actually it was my daughter's graduation and a fellow student was walking her dad who was deployed through the graduation line on an iPad. Right. So, I mean, he got to be there quote unquote, but it was still sad. You know, it was, it was a mixed thing watching this happen. See, seeing what that separation did and how it, it broke. You could, you could tell she was both happy and sad at the same time. And I think that was kind of what the whole audience felt um, as we talked about it. You know, like, wow, that's really cool. She took the iPad and showed it to the whole audience so her dad could see everybody. Um, but it's also sad, you know, because we were all there in person. We got to actually hug our children, um, you know, so you could make a case, too, for that. The, the separation... Uh, we lose the physical ability to connect and attach, which is, you know, skin being the largest organ on the body. That's something that's very important to building relationships. Um, so anyhow, got a little scattered there, but. But no, I mean, and, and, you, and, I, and I like that you bring that up because it's something that I've seen that's that's very important. Again, from my standpoint as an individual clinician and, and maybe intuitively, um, mm-hmm. but I'd like to hear your standpoint from a, a marriage and family therapist is that that connection, that immediate connection, um, can also be harmful in, in some aspects. Um, the, the current deployments, the current air, the current wars, uh, they, they didn't have this kind of immediate connection uh, in, in even the Gulf War, and definitely not in Vietnam, and, and certainly not in World War II or, or, or Korea, where it, it took letters, you know, or, or people would record uh, audio tapes and they would mail them and it would be, you know, there would be a distance and a separation. Whereas uh, I, I recall telling this story once was uh, my daughter, when I was in Iraq, she had had uh, tubes placed in her ears 
Uh, we were in combo blackout. Uh, for those who hadn't served in the military, that means there had been an attack on or near our base, uh, probably with significant casualties, and then all communication was broken, except uh, for this one instance, I was allowed to go into my battalion executive officer's um, office and talk on his phone, which was there for emergencies, to my daughter who was about to go in surgery. Um, and, and so, you know, there is a lot of that. You think of, uh, you know, American Sniper where she, he's on the phone. And yes, we didn't all carry cell phones when we were in combat, but, but that kind of thing in which that immediate connection, um, it can be both beneficial, but, but do you think it had been harmful maybe for some? Yeah, I think it's got the potential to be both. I think like a lot of things, it's inert in and of itself, just a conduit for communication. It's kind of like Facebook and social media. You know, it's a blank slate, but how much mud is slung on any given day, right, from either side of the political aisle or, or whatever else. Um, so I think, you know, the technologies for, uh, you know, talking about families being connected and staying connected, it's 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 got pros and cons. Um a lot of commanders, as you probably know, Dwayne, right, they always tell us, you know, you got to keep your head in the game, right? And you got to keep any troops that are under, you You know, if your head's not in the game, it's dangerous because you're thinking about things going on on the home front and you're not, you're not there. And people's lives can be jeopardized because of that. Um, so, you know, I don't know how much they monitor phone calls or how much they can because people can actually bring their own cell phones now. Um, to certain areas that uh, they couldn't before. Um, back in the day, they could. The, the phones were actually relayed. Um, you actually had, remember that you had to use radio protocol to actually have a phone conversation because of the delay. Um, and, and I know then that people were listening a little bit more and they would actually go through mail um, to, you know, make sure we weren't sharing sensitive information. Um, I'm not sure how much of that goes on um, now or how that's that's monitored. I'm actually out out of the loop a little bit on that. But I do think um, it's better to have some than none, some connection, because if you don't have any, then your heart is and head is definitely not in the game. Um, it can be very reassuring to, um, you know, to see a picture or to see a video of something going on. Um, so it's hard. I guess, I guess there's, there's, you know, potential for regulating things, but then there's also a lot of scary things that can come up with, you know, being monitored. Um, so I guess I don't have a strong answer there. I think it's, it's good and bad. And I, I would, I, if I was like voting on something, I'd say, no, we need to have the access. Um, but I do think it should be limited. I think, um, you know, commanders should have say on, you know, potentially, uh, I don't know how they can replicate this when people can bring cell phones certain places, but they used to like say, Hey, the phone banks are open on Friday, right? You got to go down there on Friday and each person gets an hour, right? Or something like that. I, I'm not sure if that's a right answer or anything, but. Well, and I think a, a lot of it, Josh, may have to just do with awareness to know, you know, and, and, and we don't maybe have a lot of awareness when a service member is deployed and say when something occurs and the phone is cut off, that service member, if I was in Afghanistan or I was in Iraq, I would have immediate knowledge of whether or not I'm safe. Right. I would know, OK, whatever just happened, happened on the other side of the base or whatever. Or but but I know immediately what my current situation is. I'm not worried about my wife because she's in the U.S. or my, my husband or whoever it is in, in my spouse back in the, the States because they're safe. The spouse in the States doesn't have that same certainty. Right. And no. so now all of this fantasy of of of, you know, horror is going through their mind because it may be two days, three days. It You know, in and, and this was at the height of the combat. It was up to a week where, That's right. you know, the, the service member is like, OK, I'm cool. I'm, I'm going to play spades with the boys or, or whatever it is. While right. the spouse is sitting there worried. And so that's the kind of thing that I see is that there's that tension. But the other thing is what you mentioned is is we're, we're there to do something. Exactly what you said is what I used to tell my soldiers when we were on patrol. I said, don't put pictures of mama and baby in your helmet. I don't want that out here on patrol. Don't put them in your truck. Don't do that. I want your head in the game, like you said, right? And I said, leave fob love on the fob. Don't bring it out here on patrol. And That's so right. it's this, this, even as I would, t and I would do the same thing. Is like, let's, let's, you know, we're, we're in the game, get your head in the game. 
And it's hard to shift that back. Emotions that are beneficial to us when we were deployed, such as anger, such as uh, you know adrenaline and getting after it, are not beneficial to us when we're back in a safe environment. No. And those right. emotions that were not beneficial to us, their caring, cherishing, you know, concern for children that we had to suppress when we were in an environment, those are beneficial here, but it's hard to swap those two. It's true. That's absolutely true. Um, those things don't translate. So, um, and I like what you say too. I think it is, uh, you know, practically on the ground that even as a marriage and family therapist, uh, as a veteran, I would say, uh, with, with both of those roles, I would say, no, it's better to, to separate yourself because you have to, you're, you're out doing, uh, potentially, um, I was going to say not horrific, but very heavy, heavy things, right. That, um, you need to separate yourself from the role of, of being that caring person. You can't, you can't stop and cry, uh, when there's been a loss of life, whether it be on your side or the other side, that can be a sad thing. Uh, you cannot, endorse that because then you pause and hesitation will kill you every time as, as many people know that's not just a military adage um, but definitely holds true in combat um, and then yeah you actually highlight another key point of um, I still you know I still conceptualize myself resentment and role stuff underneath but what definitely comes out on the surface is anger um, and you know kind of that high adrenaline response to things like spilled milk I actually gave, you know, a uh, scare of a lifetime to my oldest daughter. She took the brunt of uh, my my readjustment uh, coming home from Iraq. Um, I knife handed her, you know, not didn't hit her, but the knife hand when, when you're trying to get a point across and you use all your fingers to kind of gesture um, strongly to uh, emphasize your point. Um, I did that to her and I stood up and towered over her and I had my loud um, I was never a drill sergeant, but kind of had a drill sergeant sounding voice. That's very scary for a four or five year old girl um, to see her daddy, who's there to care and protect her, basically not do that to, to jeopardize her sense of safety and security. Um, so it's a very difficult dynamic to adjust to as well um, on the surface. Um, my children, you know, one of the things that it's hard to shake all of that, there can be a ripple effect and a residual impact for years. Um, so I'd consider myself having gone through a lot of family work myself and being a family therapist, um, trying to implement a lot of things that I learned from the work I do and uh, what I've studied. But one example for me is, you know, my kids still know to this day not to wake me up. Uh, if you come up and you, you grab me, you know, or even just push on my shoulder to try to wake me up. Um, I still am prone to waking up swinging, you know, the adrenaline just kicks in and, um, so, you know, there's, there's work that can be done um, and there can still be things, things get so deeply rooted, specifically in combat, the high adrenaline, the um, really it's, it's a non break. Even, even when you're resting, you're not resting. You still have a loaded weapon with you. You know, you sleep at night and you've got your rifle right there. I had a can, I was a two of three gunner. I had a grenade launcher. So I always had my, you know, two, I had two ammo cans full of um, high explosive grenades, you know, and it's, um, it's hard. It, it gets so deeply wired, um, that that also becomes one of the key struggles, uh, for that, the person that's deployed is how to adjust to, um, uncertainty, uh, loud noises like little kids, they can be very unpredictable and very loud specifically. Uh, teenagers can be that way too. And their, their moody, broody attitude that they can have sometimes can really be a trigger. When you're used to telling your troops, hey, do this right now, right? And they follow the order. And how does that work with a teenager? Anybody that's got teenagers is going to tell you, yeah, there's times where you just want to like, you know, grab them and, you know, hang them up on a hook or something because, you know, they don't they don't follow orders. You know, that's uh, and, and that's something that you bring up. And again, in my own experience, um, when I was in uh, Iraq, again, 15 month tour, I was company operations sergeant. Uh, I was one of four people in charge of the company, right? Company of 180-something people, right? You know, it's uh, um, the commander of the XO, the first sergeant in, in Sardin, France. And and so if I said do something, you know, somebody did it, right? And, and there wasn't much question. 
Uh, then I came home on my mid-tour leave. For, for those of you who haven't served, if you're overseas for a period of time, you get to go home, have a, a two-week break or about that, and then get to go back. So I went home on my mid-tour leave, still in my Sergeant France role, um, and, and nobody would listen to me. My wife wouldn't listen to me. The cats, the, the animals wouldn't listen to me, right? You know, it was just so, and, and I wanted to, and, and I did, I think. I said to my wife, I was like, don't you know who I am? And she was like, I don't care. And, and so that goes into that, that role, uh, the role exit theory you're talking about before is in, in the role and out of the role and in the role and out of the role. And especially with our, um, our more frequently deployed or the high op tempo, um, even in your six years and, and even NTCs and training and, and, and things like yeah. that, um, it's in and out. But I'd like to, to maybe touch base on yet another um, transition that really addresses a lot more of the other aspects of the um, the conceptualization is when that that combat veteran, let's say, or, or that service member leaves the military with the family. That's a whole nother transition because now they're no longer my and, and I I often say my fellow co-host uh, Jeff Adamak says he's no longer allowed to be who he was, like that's his right. identity of a special forces eighteen Delta weapon sergeant that that's where he's at he's the army says you can't be him anymore and that takes a a transition how do you see the the post-military transition impact families yeah that's huge that's i'm glad you brought that up Dwayne. that's a huge huge thing um so the way i i often say it is that you know when we're in the military and i'll use the army since that's the best branch i mean that's the example that i have um we i won't get into picking on the branches which of course is part of military culture, we can do that. Um, but at any rate, I, when you're in the army, you know, you don't say like if, if Dwayne, if we're hanging out and some dude comes up and, you know, some guy we just meet, he's like, Hey, I, I worked for the U S army. You're either like, okay, this guy's full of crap. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Or, you know, maybe he's a civilian, you know, contractor or something like that, but he didn't serve. When, when you serve, you don't say I work for the U S army. You say, I am a soldier. It's who I am. It's who I become. It's your identity. Um, a lot of people, when you talked about uh, Dwayne running to or running from something, a lot of people are trying to find that identity, which as Eric Erickson, you know, highlights in developmental stages that as a teenager, you know, you're looking for that identity development. It's a perfect fit. It's why the military grabs people, at, you know, at 18 when they can, um, because they have that identity. It's who you are. So when you get out of the military, you struggle very much with that and finding a uh, something that compares to that is very, very difficult. Um, another nuance of that is that um, if you're a hard charge and combat person, like combat arms, for example, infantry, um, right, for example, um, even harder becomes what, what, how does that role translate? I had, I had a client one time who said he was an infantry guy and he's like, I put holes in things. That's what I do. Right. How does that translate? How do you how do you find meaning in that? How do you do anything that's even close to that? Um, one last dynamic is just the adrenaline. You know, it's 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 to be honest. Right. Dwayne, you and I have been there. It's kind of exciting. There's there's a part of it. There's a part of it that's like I told my kids when they were little, I'm like, kids, I'm going to catch bad guys. And that's what I did. I was part of that. I did a lot of human intelligence when I was in Iraq. So we were out there grabbing people, snatching grabs, man. That's what I was doing. Very exciting. And then I come back and I get out and I'm like, paper or plastic, you know, it's like, it's a, it's, it's, um, it, it's kind of demeaning almost. It can be what, what it's like for the veteran uh, dealing with things. And, you know, families, if they're not, if they don't have some psychoeducation, if they're not aware um, or well-intended family members or just neighbors uh, or anybody, anybody that's not in the military can very simply say, well, why don't you just get a job? Get on with your life. Use that GI Bill. Do something. It doesn't happen like that. I think everybody has a process. Um, I think it takes time. I think if you have the right resources, it can happen sooner than later, and it should, um, because people basically waste their lives. They they kind of drag their feet and um, in their misery, they wallow in their inability to reconnect with family, to find meaning and purpose in their lives through work or some kind of vocation, something to do with their time. Um, so it's a huge struggle. There's no doubt about it. Um, and, you know, one of my favorite books that I've ever read, um, I don't know if you've read this one, Dwayne, The Heart and the Fist. 
No, I, I haven't, but uh, you got to put that sure on that... list. And I'd say anybody watching this, I, I don't mean to make a plug for it, but so real quick, the heart and the fist, this guy, Eric Greitens, he was, it, it's a fascinating book. It's basically broken into thirds. The first third, the guy was an Oxford scholar. He was a boxer. Um, so he's wicked smart. He's also tough. You know, he, he was a good boxer. Um, and he did humanitarian work with Mother Teresa's organization in Rwanda, Bosnia, different things. And he did a lot of good work. And he realized at some point, uh, the title of the book being The Heart and the Fist, he realized that the heart wasn't enough. You can't just hug everybody and make the world a good place. That's a not novel idea. And nobody hates war more than someone that's been there. But you realize very quickly you can't just do that because there's a lot of bad people out there that you know wish harm on us. So he didn't do a good job in the book describing this, but he became a Navy SEAL. He didn't describe that transition. But at some point, you know, you don't just become a Navy SEAL, but he um, decided that he needed to do that and he needed to do more. So it's one of the best depictions of military training that I've ever seen or read about. He, I've never been to BUDS, of course. I was not a SEAL. Um, but the description and the, uh, how he describes the training is phenomenal. It's, it's amazing to read. And then he talks about his missions that he did and how he used the fist you know, and, and uh, his military might to enact change and positive things in the world. So my point in, in what we were just talking about here is that the third part of the book, he talks about his transition out of the military and how he struggled. And he created an organization. He's the founder of The Mission Continues, which you may have heard of. Yeah. And so The Mission Continues basically started as a fellowship. They took one person at a time and gave them uh, they paid for them to work at a volunteer organization of their choice. And anybody that's done career counseling courses, they did a lot of um, Holland, um, they, the where's or what color is my parachute book, where they actually figure out where's the best fit for you. They didn't just say, hey, just find some place to work. They found a good fit for, you know, what your help you rediscover your passions and your, your giftings and stuff. So they, um, they, they moved from that, just funding somebody working someplace for a year to having, they actually have uh, platoons in most major cities now. They do both things. They have those fellowships and they also have platoons that do service projects. So they provide a lot of resources for veterans going through that. And it gives a, uh, a, a it's, it's kind of an intermediary conduit where it's military themed. You know, you join a platoon and I don't know if they have ranks or not. I think they do. They might have like an LT or lieutenant that's in charge of the platoon for that city. And then they deploy on service projects. So out here in Colorado, it might be forest fires and they actually send the platoon up for anybody that could go and they do service. Well, that taps into what we have in the military. We serve. Everybody that joins has some aspect of wanting to serve and make the world a better place. We might word it differently, but we all have it. So anyhow, just an example of what's out there helping people with that transition. You know, I, I like how you said that, and, and I'm definitely going to make sure that the, the heart and the fist is, uh, there's a link to it in the website, the, uh, on the show notes, and the mission continues. Um, I, I have held uh, Governor Greetings, because now he's a governor That's of Missouri. Right. Uh, he's recently right. elected governor um, as an example of the potential of veterans, um, not just for the, the negative aspect of mental health, but the positive aspects of veteran mental health, um, you know. Uh, you and I, although, you know, uh, individually, and, and both of us have shared some of this now, and you and I have shared some, you know, offline, is it's not been an easy transition, but but we've made a transition. We've, we've, we've created another mission, and veterans of this era have the ability, and I believe the responsibility, to make an impact on this century the way that the, the greatest generation, the post-World War II generation, had an impact on the last century. Uh, and, and I really like that you brought that out because uh, uh, Eric Greetens and, and, uh, and even you um, and, and those of us, you know, not everybody needs to be a governor. You know, my, my grandfather left World War II or, or two grandfathers. One became a tailor and one became a mechanic. And they both had successful businesses and careers. Um, but, but it's a way to, to reinvent yourself. I really right. appreciate that, that the right resources. And, it, and, and one thing that, that really came out is, is the awareness, needing the awareness to understand that I can't knife hand my kid for spilling milk or That's or right. I can't, uh, you know, I, I can't reprimand my, I can't, and, and this is, 
I used to have my kids stand at parade rest, right? They'd look at me when I'm talking to you. I'm a little embarrassed to admit that, but but that kind of, you know, it was uh, it was kind of uh, it happened, you know. And so going from that, you know, say you know that may not be the best way to interact with my family, um, and having that awareness around that. So, well, and also also too, Dwayne, I just wanted to jump in that the the key aspect in in this kind of arena we're talking about here in readjustment, getting out of the military, and also while, while, while we're in, uh, but more so when we're getting out is that families need to understand this too. You know, there's got to be a meeting in the middle. You know, we as the veterans who can knife hand our kids and strike fear into them, uh, we need to understand that, that we're hurting them and scaring them. And most, you know, like man to man here, dad to dad, we don't want to do that, right? That breaks a father's heart. You want to protect your children and make them feel safe. And we don't always realize that we get into our amygdala and our limbic brain, you know, and, and react rather than, you know, being compassionate and trying to understand um, where our children are coming from. And spouses, too, they need to understand and give us a little leeway, um, you know, understand that, hey, this guy is not just being a jerk. Um, this is legitimate. He's working on this stuff. And we have to show that we're working on it as, as the veteran. And the family needs to also give us some grace and some leeway in, in room to work on those things. No, I, I really like that you said that. And it, it's really tying all of this together. And this is a theme that I've heard throughout a lot of these interviews on these different aspects. Um, is that uh, it's you can't just explain it away. said, oh, he has PTSD or oh, he has TBI, right? You know, this is another aspect of veteran mental health that goes beyond just the, the, the behavioral injury, so to speak, or, or, or condition fear response of PTSD or the physical injury of TBI. Um, and, and so understanding that's the whole reason why we've done this series of podcasts. It's the whole reason why, you know, you're speaking and I'm speaking and trying to be able to raise awareness in the veteran themselves, in the community, and then amongst our fellow mental health professionals. So I really appreciate you coming on the podcast today and, and talking about that. It's exactly, I think, what you know, an introduction to um, sort of how family systems impact veteran mental health. If the, the listeners want to learn more about what you're doing or, or, or maybe how to, to get a hold of you, how would be the best way, maybe social media, Facebook, Twitter, that kind of thing? Sure. Probably the best way is just if I give my Regis email or I'm, I'm faculty, it's the easiest way to get in touch with me. And I have all my resources here. I'm actually in my office here at Regis. So uh, my email is kr. E-I, the letter M is in Mike, and then 368 at Regis.edu. That's R-E-G-I-S. So Kilo, Romeo, Echo, India, Mike, 368 at Romeo, Echo, Golf, India, Sierra, dot Echo, Delta, Uniform. 15 years later, Josh, you yeah. still got it, man. That's that's nice. nice. That's it's, right. uh, it's it's the last thing your drill sergeant would be proud of you to be able to, right. to spell phonetically. And uh, and for those who don't speak phonetics, I'll make sure that that's in the show notes so that you can you can email Josh. Uh, once again, Josh, uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show. You bet. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Dwayne. So thanks for listening to that episode with Joshua Kraymeyer talking about family systems and veteran mental health. You can find the show notes on this show and many of the things we talked about at either changeyourpov.com or veteranmentalhealth.com. Looking for episode HST035. This is the 11th episode of Veteran Mental Health Boot Camp, a series brought to you by the Change Your POV Podcast Network and the Headspace and Timing Podcast. If you're a veteran or service member, the family member of one, or support veterans in any way, then this series is designed to help you understand more about veteran mental health. If you're just now getting into the series, go back and check out episode HST025 where we introduce the concept of looking beyond PTSD and TBI in regards to veteran mental health. Work, work.
Make sure you subscribe to the Change Your POV podcast network on your podcast player of choice and sign up for updates at changeyourpov.com and veteranmentalhealth.com. We would love to hear your feedback regarding this series and all of the shows in the Change Your POV podcast network. You can do so by visiting our Facebook group, leaving a comment, or review on iTunes. Remember, veteran mental health and wellness is the basis of a successful post-military life and one that all who answered our nation's call to serve deserves. Remember, brothers and sisters, you're not alone, ever. Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.